Hello. Welcome to Wooden Teeth. My name's Jake Williams. Glad you're with us. Today on the pod, we have a guy who wrote a book. That guy's name is Edgar Villanueva. The book is called Decolonizing Wealth, Indigenous Wisdom to Heal Divides and Restore Balance. In this book, Edgar lays out how white supremacy and colonial ideas continue to influence the flow of money in America, including within philanthropy. Edgar himself has worked in philanthropy now for about 15 years, and his book isn't just about diagnosing the problem, but also presenting solutions. He does that through an approach rooted in his native heritage, uh, because Edgar is a member of the Lumbee tribe, which is based in North Carolina. Before we get to that convo, I wanted to let you know that we're going to take a break for a couple weeks for the holidays. When we get back, we'll have a bunch of new pods for you that are going to break some new topical grounds that I hope you'll enjoy. Also, I'm going to plug myself. I have a piece coming out tomorrow in Morning Consult. That's December 20th. In it, I, I cite the recent CDC reports on the third straight year of life expectancy decline in America as another giant piece of evidence that we need public policy that actually addresses the things that are doing the most to prematurely kill Americans. These measures largely exist in public health and the socioeconomic policy realm, not just healthcare. So check it out, Morning Consult. Let me know what you think. Let's get to Edgar Villanueva and his new book, Decolonizing Wealth. Proceeds from the book sale go to support Native youth. Here's Edgar and me talking. Edgar Villanueva, welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be on. So I've been reading your book, Decolonizing Wealth, Indigenous Wisdom to Heal Divides and Restore Balance. And is this this your first book? It is my first book. And before we even talk about the contents and who you are and why you wrote it, I'm curious, first on a personal level, and perhaps other people are as well, uh, how do you go about writing a book? And getting people to read it. What what is that? What was that experience like? It was life changing for me. Um, you know, a couple things that I did not know then is one, it does require a lot of discipline. So if you have an accountability partner or a coach or someone who can help you stay focused and on track, I think that's a very helpful um, addition to a process. And I had a writing coach, which was amazing. And then secondly. When you're thinking about um, most of us, I think, just are, are focused on finishing the book. There is a whole world of things that happen after a book is written, which entails the marketing and, and promotion of the book. And so budget time and resources and energy um, for for those steps, because it's a critical part of the process. Yeah, I think the first time that I found out about your book is... I kept getting these Facebook ads with Baratunde Thurston with a decolonizing wealth t-shirt on. And coincidentally, <laughs> so I saw Baratunde um, about a month ago at, at our annual event and I shared this anecdote with him as well. So I finally on like day you know, 32 decided to click through and be like, what is up with this Baratunde and the t-shirt and the book? And that's how I, that's how I discovered uh, your project. So you have Baratunde and that t-shirt to thank. But I guess that you know speaks to the the nature of you know marketing and these days and getting people to read your book is you need to reach people where they're at and once in a while I'm at Facebook. That's right. So this book is um, 
for, quote, people who direct the flow of money. And I know that, that you help direct the flow of a lot of money by working in philanthropy. How did you come to work in philanthropy in the first place? Well, I had went to the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill for public health and had worked for a number of years in the nonprofit sector um, at a national level doing work around HIV and AIDS and immunizations. And um, the Kate B. Reynolds Charitable Trust in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, which was a large health foundation, had a new president who was looking to diversify the staff in terms of race and ethnicity, but, but also age. And so the foundation was recruiting from my graduate class, and I was the lucky one who got chosen for the job. So I sort of stumbled into the field like most people in philanthropy. I wasn't quite sure what it was until after some time uh, of actually being on the inside of the organization. But um, so, yeah, so kind of happenstance and a stroke of luck got me in. And you're from North Carolina and a member of the Lumbee tribe. And I didn't know uh, a lot about the Lumbees until I read your book. And it, I found that there's an interesting cultural history of white, black, and native folks coming together. Can, can you talk about the, the cultural roots of the Lumbee? Sure. So the Lumbee tribe is in southeastern North Carolina. Uh, we have about 60,000 enrolled members. We are a state-recognized tribe, not a federally-recognized tribe, which is a, a whole nother conversation. <laughs> Um, but we are uh, in sort of rural southeastern North Carolina, and we have a long history of being um, very open and inclusive and working with other, um, other races and ethnicities. We were the very first point of contact in eastern North Carolina with the settlers and colonizers. And so there's a long history um, of fighting for civil rights. And then, of course, as uh, slaves were brought over from Africa um, other, you know, um, populations have immigrated to North Carolina. We've always been there and we've always been uh, quite diverse and we've worked together with other folks to fight for civil rights. And so Robinson County, North Carolina, where the tribe is situated, is a still a very diverse community and um, continues to sort of, you know, uh, be successful, I think, in terms of race relations and in many ways that um, have influenced my um, ability to be in solidarity with all kinds of folks. So what specifically about your native heritage, as well as your North Carolinian roots and your life experience, has guided you in the first place to you know, consider philanthropy as a career and then guided your trajectory through it? You know, I think it definitely is a combination of my nativeness as well as just sort of how I was raised and other influences in my life um, growing up that pushed me to want to work in the social sector. I initially actually, after high school, went to seminary because I was raised in a church that was very mission-minded, um, very much driven to um, reach out and be in the community and my mom was involved in a ministry of bringing young children, uh, kids to, to our church. And so I grew up um, involved in helping her in that ministry in many ways, helping other children. Although we were very poor, marginalized, this was an outlet for her and it became an outlet for me to not focus on our own pain or our own poverty, but to actually focus on where we can be helpful. And so that was sort of uh, my childhood. My mom was also 
um, a domestic worker and uh, did private duty nursing care for uh, frail elderly folks in our community, as well as cleaned houses. And so at an early age, I was also exposed to both ends of the race wealth divide because my mom was often working in homes of rich people in our community. And I um, got to know some of these folks and spend time in their homes. And so all of these you know, types of experiences, I think, sort of positioned me to want to help others, understanding that I was sort of a uh, sort of an exception to uh, the statistics. I was the first in my family to graduate from high school and the first to go to college. And um, and so I knew that I had to do something to sort of break this cycle in my own community of, of, of poverty, uh, violence. And so seminary was the path I chose because I only, I didn't know about the nonprofit sector or about philanthropy or anything out of high school, but I knew that church was a place where I had received help and had been a vehicle for serving the community. And uh, after seminary, once I decided that going into ministry was not quite the right fit for me, I stumbled into a nonprofit organization and learned about the entire social sector and that there were many ways that I can be involved in sort of giving back and supporting my community and other communities through that work. So you get to philanthropy as a professional adult, which is one of the widest sectors in professional America, have you ever really felt like you belonged? And, you know, what was that journey like? You know, I think that initially there were ways that I felt like I belonged because I identified with the mission of the foundation. There were other people who worked there who had a similar background in terms of wanting to really see change in communities. And so that spoke to me. Uh, but very soon I realized that I did not belong in a lot of ways. Um, my first job in North Carolina was literally working on a plantation that had been the what that was the estate of RJ Reynolds. And I drove every day to this very affluent um, you know office that was situated on this beautiful estate that's now a park and a part of Wake Forest University. And um, there was a sort of different type of expectation put on me in terms of how I was to live and behave. And, you know, that I was now representing this legacy of wealth and this, this individual who had been uh, wealthy and had a legacy of caring for the community. You know, we had large oil paintings of her and the family and we're kind of, you know, taught that we were representing at all times this family and their legacy of wealth. And, and so that was not necessarily what I thought I had signed up for. I thought I was there to really be focused on the community and affecting change there and, and really bringing, representing the community inside this space. And so I felt conflicted. Um, and then I would also say that there was, uh, you know, being actually a person of color, but also being young. I was only 28 years old when I started in philanthropy and had a rather large portfolio. Um, often I was sent out into the community or went out into the community and I was meeting with, you know, uh, CEOs of, of large healthcare systems and, you know, leaders in the university systems. So these large traditional institutional kind of organizations in our community and often I felt like, um, you know, folks were looking at me um, sort of like, you know, how did this young brown boy get access to the treasure or 
Why is he the one that has the keys to the treasure box? And it's sort of, you know, um, a type of insecurity of, of always having to, um, you know, show up as a leader in all white spaces. Most of our board and uh, staff and the, the leadership of this organization were, were white folks. And of course, the wealth had come from a, a white family. And so navigating that all as a young person of color was, was quite um, perplexing at times. And in your book, it reads not like a, a, a manual or a necessarily a, a straightforward how-to, but it reads more like a story or really a series of stories. And in part one, the chapters are named for elements in a slave plantation. Why is that? So um, literally and figuratively. So literally, um, as I mentioned, my first job was on a plantation. And so many times I would drive to work again, this beautiful park now, um, retail space and the foundation offices were there. But I would often sort of imagine, you know, a few generations before me, slaves that were working on this plantation that were contributing to um, helping to build the wealth of this family, right? And then knowing the challenges that I was facing to now try to, you know, invest that money in communities of color. There were lots of barriers. But also throughout the years, people of color in philanthropy sort of inside of these ivory towers, you know, we have a network, we have uh, formal networks, we have informal networks where we talk and connect and support one another. And we sort of have this analogy where we talk about being on the plantation. And, and that's sort of how it feels for, for many of us. Um, people of color who are working in, in, in these institutions often, you know, we kind of joked around that we were like the house slaves because we we're out of the field, but we, we had a little bit of privilege and power because we were inside and had that proximity to, uh, to the master, so to speak. And so it's sort of a, an analogy that's been used for, for many years among communities of color. Um, and I thought that it was, you know, this was an opportunity in bringing this conversation to a main stage and shedding light on these issues inside of foundations and nonprofits that I would use that analogy. Speaking of those issues within philanthropy, I, I picked up on a few key phrases in, in the book that I was hoping that you could expound upon. One was colonizer virus. Another one was savior mentality. And then finally, white supremacy. How, does, how do those phrases apply to what's going on in philanthropy right now? Great question. So the colonizer virus I, is, a, is a term that I crafted to think about the dynamics of colonization in our history. So 500 years ago, the process of colonization began in this country, starting in, in my own community. And colonization, you know, historically and, and recently, because this is something that's still happening and it's not just something from 500 years ago, is, is, is underlined with the dynamics of separating, controlling, exploiting. Um, you know, historically it was based on us, you know, stolen land, exploiting the land, genocide, slavery, and these types of, of tactics that are about accumulating wealth sort of by, by any means necessary. Um, you know, that, that process and that mindset is a part of our DNA as a country. And so I, I talk about the colonizer virus as what remains um, from colonization in our society, in our culture and institutions, uh, because uh, you know that that dominant mindset of dividing, controlling, exploiting, 
um, sort of uh, still seems to permeate and, and impacts our systems and our policies and our institutions. And it especially shows up um, in institutions that move and control wealth like philanthropy. Um, the, the other terms that you mentioned, sort of like white savior, you know, white savior is a sort of a, a syndrome or a state of being for, I, I think, you know, in the nonprofit sector and in philanthropy, there are those, uh, you know, white individuals who are well-intentioned in most cases to want to help, but often their um, altruism is, is driven by um, and connected to their own need to feel centered in the work. And um, we often in philanthropy being uh, that we have resources, that we have power, we have the ability to drive agendas, to drive strategies, and to sort of force uh, an assimilation to our way of doing things, um, do that <laughs> without uh, engaging the community or giving up some of our power to communities that we're trying to help. And so there's a, a lot of chatter and there has been a lot of chatter in this sector about sort of the white savior complex. Um, and then finally, your, your, um, the statement white supremacy. So we talk a lot, especially recently in this country about racism. And I, I like to actually use the term white supremacy because it's a little more specific. When we say racism, we're talking sort of about all types of prejudice and biases, which, which, which definitely is a thing. But when we say white supremacy, we're specifically naming who in the system is benefiting from, um, from the tactics or the strategies. And I also like to say white supremacy because I think um, even for people who are white, to get to a place that they can acknowledge their whiteness and how the idea of um, elevating whiteness above um, all other races is something that's not real. And so, you know, it, it's at first, I think, uncomfortable for a, a lot of white people to use the word white supremacy or be comfortable with that word until they get to a place in their analysis and they understand, well, we're not talking about me necessarily because I happen to be a white person. We're talking about this made up concept that the that, that whiteness is superior, that it's better, that is, uh, you know, uh, the white the white way is the, the more um, preferred or right way. And so it's just a lot more clear when we can actually name what we're trying to dismantle um, versus using a more vague term like racism. In this book, you not only, of course, diagnose the problem, but you also you know, prescribe some solutions. And in doing so, you use this phrase, money as medicine. Can you share what you mean by that? Absolutely. So historically, at least in my community and in my life, uh, money has often had a negative connotation. And I think that's because many of us have not had it. And we think that, um, you know, maybe folks who have money um, might be using it for the bad or they got that money, you know, knowing that that money has been acquired in, in ways that have been harmful to communities. Um, but the case I'm making in the book is that money can actually be neutral or that money is neutral. That it's just a proxy for, um, you know, relationships and, and transactions and something that we use in this complex society in order to sort of buy and sell. 
and that it's not that money that is evil it is actually the love of money when we elevate and uh, you know love money more than we do relationships or people or the land and we're willing to sort of exploit all of the above for the sake of um you know accumulating more money and so if money is actually neutral then we can flip the way that money has been used and use it for the good and so using money as medicine means that we're using money in a way that's helping to restore balance, uh, to help heal, to facilitate relationships and connectivity, and also in a way that actually responds to the hurt and the pain and the harm that the accumulation of wealth has historically caused. And so this is why in the indigenous culture, we can um, sort of uh, acknowledge something being medicine in our lives if it is something that um, sort of helps us feel whole, um, brings and restores balance to a situation or to our lives, it's sort of a, a sacred, um, you know, a, a sacred title that we can put on anything, um, a, a place, a person, an animal, um, a stone, a cup of coffee, anything that really brings that, that inner peace to us is medicine. And so therefore, um, I think that money can be used as medicine in a sacred way if we are, again, using it to help repair and, and bring balance to the world. And how is money being used incorrectly now in philanthropy, in some cases at least? So in, in a couple of different ways. One, I think that sort of elements of white supremacy or the colonizer virus that we talked about before shows up really intensely when you look at the, uh, who has the power to actually make decisions um, about how money is used, how it's invested. When you look at how money has been accumulated, all of that history, there's a lot of, of, lot of harmful things that you can uh, basically conclude from that. We have, we have a diversity problem. We have um, a, a challenge around sharing power in this field. And then ultimately, when you look at how uh, where resources are being invested. We're grossly underinvesting in communities of color and philanthropy. And so, and just to break that down to some quick numbers, foundations are sitting on $800 billion in assets, 800 billion with a B. Um, and they're only um, investing about 5% of that, those resources in the community because that's what Congress forces private foundations to do. So only a minimum amount of this money that has been sheltered um, from taxation um, is, is warehoused, um, and only a minimum amount of that is actually going into communities. And of that small percentage, only seven to eight percent of that is invested in communities of color. And so we're really, uh, I think that's really unjust that one, uh, money that is intended for public good is mostly tied up in Wall Street and not actually benefiting the public 95% of that money. And then two, the 5% that we are moving out of foundations into the community, only a small, small percentage of that is actually benefiting communities of color who have played a significant role in helping to accumulate wealth in this country. Yeah, it strikes me that the way philanthropy functions in the United States is relatively unique compared to other countries, especially other advanced countries. You know, in, in Europe, for example, they of course have a, they have a philanthropic sector, but most of the resources that are spent from that sector are focused on other countries, other less fortunate countries, um, primarily because the tax system in those countries is the primary means of making sure that the folks in those countries 
have what they need to succeed and, and be healthy. So here is, is the mere existence of our philanthropic sector as it's currently operated inhibiting our country's ability to build a better society? I would say in general, yes. Um, on one hand, philanthropy has played a role in this country um, in many ways in pushing us along, um, helping us evolve and progress as a nation. You know, philanthropy has funded breakthroughs in science and has supported movements in this country, like the civil rights movement. However, um, I think that we you bring up a really good point that philanthropy as it exists in this country is is very unique. And there's a lot of money. This money would have gone into the public system to pay for public education, health care, elder care, um, you know, the infrastructure in our communities. But however, because we have this sort of a, a tax system that allows for wealthy corporations, wealthy families and individuals to actually not pay taxes, but to put that money into foundations, I think we're actually doing um, a little bit of a disservice um, to, uh, to our communities because we all know in state budgets and public health budgets and, and public education, uh, we are so starved for resources. And so I think that there's this, you know, there's the um, veneer of charity. We, you know, we hear about good things that foundations are doing, but we don't know as a general public for the most part that the, the bulk of these resources are tied up in investments on Wall Street with the intention of making foundations richer. And so I think that we have to ask ourselves, you know, what is really the net value of philanthropy if with one hand with the 5% we're doing a little bit of good, but we have 95% in our right hand that's actually investing um, in, um, you know, industries that are extractive and potentially harming us. Yeah, I've, I've worked in philanthropy. Um, I've been on the other side and, you know, been the, the receiver of funding for which I've had to, of course, ask and, you know, philanthropy is not a monolith. There's a lot of different people. And I, I don't think that in all cases, I'd say that the folks I've met in philanthropy certainly aren't evil. Um, but, you know, I, I have detected in some conversations that I've had, especially in the health world, um, with funders who kind of betray a bias, whether it's known or unknown to them, or even if it's real, I don't know. But the bias is that they don't seem to have any interest in any sort of radical change that changes the system at its root, say via public policy, and may in some ways um, want to maintain the current deficiencies in the system because it helps justify their own existence. That is, you know, the funders are playing a kind of a mitigation role and if the reason for mitigation goes away, the need for their existence goes away, and hence the bias. Is that ever something you detect, or, or am I being too conspiratorial in my thinking? No, I think about that every day. <laughs> You're right. You know, there's. Uh, I recently was on a panel in New York that was a, a conversation around the legitimacy of philanthropy, and I think that... Um, I think that you are you're right on in terms of you know many foundations exist to to move resources. We're often not doing work on the front lines, 
And so, so much of our energy does become to uh, focus inward on ourselves and our privilege and what we need to do to feel, um, you know, legitimate. And, uh, you know, I think that it's, it's especially with healthcare foundations, we know that uh, in, in the health sector that where we are, it's really uh, the sick sector, right? Where most of the resources are focused on um, not improving the health of folks, but treating illnesses and prevention and public health practices are sort of an afterthought or um, get, get uh, you know, less attention or in less resources. And many health foundations across the country were started from, you know, the cell of healthcare systems or sick care systems, if you want to call it that. And so I think there is an inc- inclination by philanthropy and health foundations to focus on, um, you know, hospice care and helping to build hospitals and emergency rooms and buy x-ray machines and all of those things that are very much treatment focused. But, um, you know, and there's also sort of some instant gratification, you know, around that mm-hmm. versus really going upstream and focusing at the root problem of um, a lot of uh, sickness in our country. Because when you begin to peel that onion, you're going to have to talk about race and income and, and all those socioeconomic uh, factors that make uh, folks a little uncomfortable sometimes. Yeah, the other problem-esque thing that I've thought a lot about about the existence of philanthropy is not the stuff that philanthropy does or, or doesn't do, but how their how the existence of philanthropy is used by other people with an agenda as an excuse for the government or to, to not do more or for public policy not to have to play a role in, in helping people out. I always think about, I don't know if you remember this, but a long time ago when Ron Paul was running for president and there was a presidential debate. And at the time there was a story in the news about one of his staffers who um, you know, contracted some sort of terminal illness and uh, that, that person didn't have health insurance. And I, I believe that Ron Paul helped him out with some sort of fundraiser to help pay for his care. And the question from the moderator at the debate was, well, there's not a system in place to um, take care of someone like this. And he was lucky because he had you to help him out. But should we just let people like this die? And then some folks in the audience screamed yes and kind of you know cheered it on. And then Ron Paul kind of dodged the question and then segued into this thing about, oh, back in his day, there were churches and charity to take care of folks like that. And if we just had more of that, then you know this wouldn't be a problem. So it's not a government problem, it's a philanthropy problem. And is that something that you've encountered in your work, people kind of using philanthropy's existence as a reason for the government to not do more? Absolutely. I think there's been a debate for a long time if um, about whether or not philanthropy's existence is about plugging a hole that should be filled by public or governmental resources versus philanthropy being um, like a laboratory where new models and ideas can be tested and potentially rolled out and adopted by the government. I think that the debate around um, how philanthropy may or may not be propping up the government is, is very, um, you know, uh, something is, is something we should really consider and think about because our government is not providing health care, universal health care. Uh, public education in this country, which is supposed to be a right, is something that is being eroded um, and not provided in, in many places. And there's a movement to privatize that. 
And so the same folks who are often investing and running these foundations have these political agendas where they are also at the same time um, influencing the divestment of public services for our, our communities. And so that is uh, something that is terrifying to me. And um, I think a dark side of the philanthropic sector that um, most folks, again, don't see because we only hear about, oh, look, this family is so charitable. They bought this hospital wing or look, this foundation did X, Y, and Z. But you have to look at the, the, the picture in its entirety to understand how are all these resources being used? Where did this money come from and who's making decisions about that money and what other agendas might they have? And not to sound, you know, like a to, to fuel conspiracy theories, um, but, you know, we have data actually to to back up and to validate that we know that the money is not going where it's needed the most to close the race wealth gap and to close disparities in communities of color. And we also know that foundational resources, again, that are, are being warehoused um, to accumulate more and more wealth. Um, are, are as money that should have gone into the public system and that money is, is not being invested in our communities. And so we need to at least explore the idea of liberating those resources and finding a way to use those for the most good. I think the other bias I worry about, in, not just sector-wide, but in my own personal world, uh, because we manage a small endowment here at Healthier Colorado, is you know the, our money ultimately comes from the market from Wall Street. And um, there have been plenty of times when we've pursued public policy that wouldn't necessarily, you know, benefit the the profits of companies who ultimately influence the indexes, the indices off of which, you know, we make money. And I'm always questioning myself, you know, about whether I have some sort of inherent bias given the source of some of our money against taking steps in public policy or otherwise that might erode in the uh, the potential return our on our endowment. Is this something that you've experienced or is it something you've witnessed within the sector? Yeah, absolutely. I think that on the investment side, so when we're talking about the 95% of private philanthropy that that is not leaving the door but being reinvested, the argument there is like we we need to uh, the number one priority, you know, is that we need to invest this money in a way that is bringing a return on this investment that's going to ensure that this foundation goes on in perpetuity. Because what about 30 years from now, there'll be need and the foundation needs to be around, um, which, you know, I, I can understand one side of that argument. But it also it's slightly ridiculous <laughs> when we think about the amount of need that exists right now. And the fact that we are, um, you know, often using these, these uh, investing in things that are actually counterintuitive, intuitive and harmful to our communities. Um, so it is a struggle. I think that the next, the next wave, um, of, of change or reform in philanthropy will be around investments. Uh, we have, uh, lots of conversations and meetings and networks and foundations that have actually stepped up to commit to putting 100% of their investments in mission-related funds um, in a way that advances their mission um, we and, and showing that there can be a return on those investments. But I, I think that we have to ultimately redefine what we mean by um, return. Like what, 
a return on investment means what? Does it mean that we're getting richer and richer and richer? Or does it mean that we are seeing change in communities and improvements and, and various issues that we care about? That's the real returns that we should be looking at. Um, you know, if we're really about the people business and we're really about philanthropy, the love of mankind, it's is mankind getting better versus is our bank account getting larger uh, at the detriment of, of communities? So you mentioned there's $800 billion in assets um, within philanthropy. And if you just empty the coffers, all of it right now into the economy towards some good purpose, it, it would certainly make some sort of dent for sure. But at the same time, you know, we're a, we're a big country uh, with a dynamic um, economy and, and a lot of people. And that's why some within philanthropy have started to pursue public policy as an even greater lever to um, achieve change. It feels like, especially within the health sector, there's an increasing interest in, in using public policy um, as a means to improve people's lives. What do you think about that? You know, on the, I think the upsides are obvious in terms of um, capacity to create change, but also there could be, you know, downsides or concerns have been raised about bringing politics into philanthropy and the, you know, dangers that are associated with it. What, what do you think? So I, I think that supporting policy change, advocacy work, and movement building work is, is philanthropy practice at its best. Um, you know, there's always going to be a role for supporting direct services and, and charity. Um, but if we actually are serious about accomplishing our missions, we have to go beyond charity and direct service to think about policy, right? And think about system change. We have foundations with huge missions, right? Of, you know, um, uh, eradicating HIV and AIDS or eliminating hunger from the world. We are never going to do that by um, just, you know, sort of uh, funding direct services only. We have to think about uh, policy change and system change. We, um, there, there's so much that has been done to help foundations understand that you can actually fund this work. It is not against the law. There, are, there is a line. And as a private foundation, you can go pretty far up to that line without getting in trouble. Um, you also, if you're a, a community foundation or a public foundation, you can actually, you know, cross that line and, and, and support legislation and lobbying and those types of things. It just requires a different amount of paperwork. I think the challenge is to do that work. Um, there, there's a connotation that it's risky. Uh, there's a, you know, the thought that it's a little bit harder or challenging. You don't have the immediate gratification sometimes because it takes time and, you know, to see policy change in some cases. And so it's just sort of a harder thing for people to do. And I think philanthropy is ultimately kind of lazy, to be honest, uh, because in order to change this stuff, in order to do the right thing, uh, it's going to involve work on our part to to understand the rules and to find a different set of partners outside of who we currently fund. But I do think uh, there's a study from the National Committee for Response and Philanthropy, which is a great resource that uh, shows that the return on investment from a dollar, uh, a philanthropic dollar when supporting um, policy and systemic change is, is much higher. I think it's, um, I hate to misquote it, but I think it's like, you know, uh, it's like a dollar and 75 cents to the dollar or something like that for, for supporting uh, direct service. 
And so there is a business case for it. Um, and then it just makes sense if you are um, looking to impact the most people that you need to look at the policy and systems level. I do think um, just one thing I want to add to the idea of philanthropy being small and limited. I think you're absolutely right in terms of the amount of money and resources and power that philanthropy has is sort of um, limited when you compare that to other types of capital and money moving through our communities um, from government, local, state, federal budgets, from venture capital and corporate money. And so the ideas in this book are, are intended to support thinking through all of these uh, from, the, from the gifts to the long spectrum because we have uh, the colonizing virus that we talked about earlier, those dynamics are showing up um, in, uh, even in government and, and local, state, and federal budgets um, in ways that are also uh, reflective of, um, you know, um, things that are not fair and are not being supportive of communities of color in a very intentional way. And so we need to also examine uh, those institutions for ways that they can actually be more equitable and in, in how they are moving resources out the door to support communities. So you're a relatively young guy. How old are you? I am 41. 40. So you're like the same age as I am. So you um, could have at least another 20 years in this racket, right? Mm-hmm. And by the way, I didn't say racket like a negative thing. I just meant. <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm in it too, man. So I'm not self-indicting. Um, so if you could paint a picture of philanthropy in, in 20 years in your ideal world, what, what would it look like? Well, I mean, in my most ideal world, we would live, uh, in a country where the philanthropy didn't exist, <laughs> you know, because we have, we have, uh, moved these resources. We've achieved equity in many ways. Um, I know that's probably not realistic. So, the incremental goals that I see um, or wish for um, is that, you know, there, there is some type of accountability on this sector. Uh, I think that the accountability is going to have to come from the outside, um, whether that's through legislation or through uh, litigation or, or whatnot. We as a field are too slow to self-correct. I think there's been a, there's been a number of, of, of initiatives and hundreds of thousands of dollars spent by the field to examine itself, to fund studies, to have task force and conferences. Um, And, uh, you know, every other day I see that there's another study that someone's doing on like diversity issues and philanthropy. And I just want to like stab my eyeballs out because I'm like, what else do you need to know? Uh, (laughs) And so, um, so I just think, you know, I, I would, you know, I like to actually think about some type of uh, legislation or something that would push this bill to do something different. I think that day is probably, is, is, is probably going to come sooner than later. We have, um, you know, with this last election, uh, you know, the foundations kind of got on the radar of the general public in a way that they have not before. I've uh, been doing a lot of conversations with NPR stations around the country and um, people know about foundations because of the, the Trump Foundation and the Clinton Foundation that came up in the debate and are beginning to ask questions. I also think that the way that we are starving um, communities of resources is going to cause people to begin to look at foundations as a big pot of money that's sitting over there that we, we need and we want. Um, I've also seen and I talk about in the book, um, 
you know, anecdotes of community organizations that do direct actions on foundations that begin to make demands because they are fed up with the status quo and, and business as usual. So I, I dream of there being, um, you know, more transparency, more accountability, and that may show up and be reflected in the way that, that boards look. There may be requirements around having boards that really do reflect the demographics of communities that cannot be um, all family members. And, and you know, the, the things that we do on philanthropy would just never be accepted in other sectors, but it's like completely normal. I think that the 5% payout, um, you know, this was something that Congress enacted back in uh, 2004, I'm sorry, in, in uh, 1976, um, as a way of um, requiring foundations to put money in communities, because at the time they were starting up getting the tax break and not funding at all. And so the minimum payout of 5% is, has become the default uh, for most foundations. There have been campaigns in the past, uh, in 2004, the number that was in my mind, um, actually to force that, uh, or to, to advocate for that percentage to be increased. And it was a, a bitter fight and it was lost, but I think we can revisit um, campaigns like that that will require foundations to pay out um, more of their resources. So I'm hopeful, I think in my lifetime, if I saw at least some type of, of new requirements put on foundations that require them to be more democratic, that require them to, um, to fund and release more of their money into communities, then um, I will be feeling pretty hopeful about our progress because those are two levers of change that um, if we can move the needle and shake up a little bit would have profound impacts. And I failed to ask, where am I calling you? Where are you at right now? Um, I live in Brooklyn, New York. Oh, all right. Well, uh, I hope you have a, a wonderful week there in Brooklyn. Uh, Decolonizing Wealth Indigenous Wisdom to Heal Divides and Restore Balance is the name of the book. It's awesome. I bought it. You should too. Thank you, Edgar. Thank you. I appreciate it. And I just want to mention that the proceeds from the book, um, as well as our t-shirts that we launched on our website, decolonizingwealth.com, all the proceeds are supporting Native youth. So um, in addition to trying to shake up the conversation, we are raising money to support our community. So we appreciate your support and partnership. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. So maybe you could tell that there was an audio switch halfway through that interview. There was. There, we had some technical difficulties, but we got through it. Um, I hope you enjoyed the content, though. Edgar's a really smart guy. That was his first book. Hopefully he writes a second. As always, please subscribe and rate us. I'll see you in a couple weeks. Happy holidays.